You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And I am so pumped about this episode of The Western Rookie because I've got a guy on the show that I've been listening to for years and years. I've probably heard his voice for hundreds of hours um, doing yard work or, or at my job. But he is the author of That Wild Country. He's the host of the Wired to Hunt podcast. He's now part of the Meat Eater crew. And I'm, I'm so thrilled and honored to be able to talk to Mark Kenyon on the show today. Now, we're going to talk to him about something a little bit different. Uh, because if you've listened to the Wired to Hunt podcast, it's a lot about white-tailed deer hunting. He goes into his new adventures a little bit. But we're going to chat with him and pick his brain about what that transition looked like from being primarily a white-tailed deer hunter to exploring some of the hunting opportunities and fishing opportunities that the West has to offer. So I can't wait. We're going to dive into this one and buckle up because it is a great show. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. All right, guys, welcome to today's episode of The Western Rookie. And on the show with me today is a guy that I, I actually can't believe he's on the show with me right now. It's kind of cool. I've been listening to Mark Kenyon for several years now from episode one of Wired to Hunt. And him and Dan were kind of my role models getting into um, getting into podcasting. So, Mark, thanks for being on the show. Hey, you're welcome. I'm uh, glad to be here and appreciate you listening Listening to the old archival episodes of Wired to Hunt, going way back to, geez, episode one would have been 2014, I think. So I was just a, a wee little chap back then. <laughs> so Man. thanks. Well, and your mustache game has improved. I remember <laughs> it used to only be a goatee, and now you've got a full-on mustache. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, you know, I got to switch it up. I'm getting old. Time to get something new going. Figure this will be the this will be the thing for the moment. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, why don't you start out by kind of giving a brief intro of yourself. Tell people, I can't imagine there's many people listening that don't know who you are or have followed along with your journey in the meat eater. Um, but why don't you kind of update the listeners on what's going on with that? Yeah, sure. So uh, what I do now is uh, I am a member of the meat eater team. 
As part of that, I host the Wired Hunt podcast. I, I founded Wired Hunt back in 2008 and grew it from a little side project into eventually my full-time job four years later. And I did that full-time for four years. And then in 2018, I merged Wired to Hunt into Meat Eater when Meat Eater expanded to a larger network. So since that point, Wired to Hunt has been a part of the Meat Eater network. Uh, so I still run the Wired Hunt podcast. We now have a Wired to Hunt website and section, which is basically Meat Eater's whitetail, um, whitetail brand. So we've got articles we've got the main show of the wired hunt podcast we have the foundations mini series which is a short form kind of monologue style weekly lesson from tony peterson one of the best deer hunters in the world um we've got rut fresh radio in the fall which is weekly reports on deer activity and what's happening in the woods all across the country from different hunters uh so we do that i write uh i also host meteors whitetail tv shows so we did the back 40 a couple years ago, last year, we did a new show called One Week in November. I also filmed a third show, which is going to air this year. So that's a new one coming down the pipeline here in a few months. Uh, and then I guess on top of that, I also write books. I'm the author of a book called That Wild Country, which is about the history and future of America's public lands. So so that's who I am. That's, that's what I do. I, I hunt, I fish, and I try to work to make sure we've got wild places and wild animals to uh, keep enjoying the future. That's awesome, man. I, I got an episode or I got a copy of that wild country last year for Christmas. And nice. I've got to say, I'm not much of a reader. I, I struggle. If I read, I fall asleep, but I burned through that book faster than I've ever read anything in my life. It was amazing. And awesome. I started marking down all these places that you're talking about. Cause my wife and I are actually getting a class C, um, RV in August and we're going to hit the road nice. for a year. I'm going to travel we're going to go see different wilderness places around the country and try to hunt Good with different you. people that I've been connecting with. So, uh, that has blessed. definitely been an awesome inspiration for me. Um, thank what, you for reading it. Yeah, absolutely. What, what did the transition look like from, I mean, I know you're still whitetail hunting quite a bit, but you've picked up a lot of different Western tags over the years as I've been following along. What, what was that transition like? Well, uh, kind of like you're describing, you're going to do here in the future. Um, back in 2000, well, I, I traveled west as an adult for the first time back in 2009. My wife, my girlfriend at the time, did a cross-country trip, a three-week camping trip across the west, hit Rocky Mountain National Park, Grand Teton, Yellowstone, and some other national forests along the way, and I just fell in love with the place out there. Um, and so ever since then, we've been returning West every summer for the first, it was a week. Uh, and then eventually once I quit my day job and went full-time with wired to hunt, I was able to work from anywhere. So we started renting a house or cabin out West. We did that for two years, uh, spending our summers out in Idaho. And then a few years later, we bought an old camper, renovated that, and then just lived out of a camper all across the West for the spring and summer for a few years. Um, so each of those years, I started adding more and more to what I did out there. And I think it was 2013 that I did my first Western hunt. That was an elk hunt in Idaho. And since then I've elk hunted in Idaho, Oregon, and Montana. I caribou hunted in Alaska. I've bear hunted in Idaho and Montana. And I have deer hunted in Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, Nebraska, um, Wyoming, 
don't know if I've done Wyoming yet. I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, so, so I've, I've dabbled in a little bit of a lot out there um, and just love it. Just love everything about the West. Um, we, a couple of years ago, ended up buying a cabin out there. So now that transition of spending more and more time there continues. So this will be our third year now. We'll, we'll spend May through August living out there at our place um, right on the Idaho-Wyoming line. So, uh, so we'll be doing more deer hunting this year, maybe elk, um, probably bear, uh, maybe turkeys. So uh, it's just an incredible resource we have out there. Lots of wild places, a lot of open space, um, and just tremendous wildlife populations and gorgeous, gorgeous scenery. So you can't beat it as far as I'm concerned. Dude, following along with you on social media, I see you out fly fishing in some of this country that is unbelievable. And I'm like, man, what what a cool life. And that's a pretty impressive resume from like being in Michigan, primarily hunting whitetail and now getting to venture out and try a bunch of other types of big game hunting. Um, have, have your passions changed at all? I mean, I know you're still a diehard whitetail hunter, but is there anything that's kind of creeping up? Yeah. Um, yes, it is actually fly fishing. You mentioned it. Um, I mean, I, I've loved all the Western hunting I've done, but the fly fishing thing has really, really bitten me hard. And I think that's because I needed something like dramatically different from the deer hunting because I, I'm so deep and heavy into that, right? My day job is all related to whitetail deer hunting. So every day I'm, or every week I'm spending hours talking to people about it. I'm writing about it. I'm building business ideas and projects and hosting shows and everything. It's all about that. There's just a lot tied into that one single thing. And so I, I, I found myself gravitating more and more towards something very different as that counterbalance. That's totally relaxing, has no pressure on it. That's very active and in different places. So I just needed like a reprieve. I, I love the whitetail stuff, but I needed something that I could love that was the opposite. And fly fishing has been that for me. It puts me out in these beautiful places typically out in pretty wild locations. Um, you know, it's very active. It, it kind of presses some of the same buttons that deer hunting does as far as like trying to understand the habitat and understand the animal. And, you know, you're kind of hunting fish in a certain way. It's kind of like bow hunting in that way. Um, but it's, it's very pressure free for me while deer hunting has become, you know, because it's my job. Um, there is a certain set of uh, expectations, I guess, built around it. So yeah, I'm eating up, eating up, something by fly fishing and uh and yeah it's it's uh, it's been a good thing for me and i love spending time out there doing that too yeah that seems like it'd be a pretty good transition or segue from the east to the west because i know even out east there's a lot of different opportunities there's i mean especially you coming from michigan i would imagine yeah. it's similar to wisconsin in the cold clean and clear creeks and rivers running through yeah um so a lot of people that might have access to that that could be a good segue or transition out west for them absolutely you're, you're very right and there's a whole lot of um <clears throat> there's just one of the great things about the western united states is the fact that there's just so much access um you know i live in southern michigan where we don't really have any public land we actually don't have cold clean water down here in southern michigan um and you can feel kind of hemmed in like the only stuff i've got access to is like things i've knocked on door to get permit knocked on doors to get permission uh there's not great fishing around me that kind of stuff so it is a it just feels like the shackles are pulled off of you and like a weight is lifted off your shoulders when you get you know past central nebraska and you get into those western states where there are 
millions of acres of BLM land or national forest or national parks or designated wilderness and you can step foot out of your truck and it's like, oh, I can walk as far as I want and I will never cross a private property boundary. I can go anywhere. I can fish. I can hunt. I can camp. You can have as wild of an experience as you want. And um, that's like it's like the daydream of a 12 year old boy, you know, back in the day, I just wanted to go run around and explore. And when I was 12, I was for eight or whatever it was, I was running around the neighborhood, pulling snakes and turtles and frogs out of ponds and trespassing probably all over people's yards. I had no idea. <laughs> um, and now I can do that as a 34 year old um, legally yeah. and get into some pretty cool things. So we're, we're really lucky. It's easy to take it for granted. And I did for a lot of years, but uh, we're very lucky to have places like that all across the country, but the West, especially. Yeah. What, what does that look like? Um, as far as big game hunting goes, trying, trying to make that transition from, like you said, knocking on doors just to get permission to now having almost an unlimited resource. Once you get out there, not having to cross private property boundaries. Um, I'm assuming there were quite a few learning curves that took place as you were pursuing big game. Yeah, I mean, it's it's liberating from the fact that you don't have like 40 and 60 acre private parcels that you're trying to get access to and that, that being your only hunting, which is what I have basically here in Michigan. Um, instead, it was like, oh, wow, you could just show up at any of these places as long as you know the units and, you know, what regulations there are out there. As long as you know the basics and you've got some kind of mapping tool, app, whatever, that'll show you the lines, um, you could walk for days and days and have all that ground to hunt which is basically what we had on my first Western hunt when I went out to Idaho to hunt elk. It was a over-the-counter tag, so I showed up the day before the morning of the hunt. We drove overnight. We got to Idaho. I pulled into a gas station. I bought an elk tag, and we were hunting two hours later, um, which is pretty incredible. Now, the flip side of that, though, is that can also be kind of intimidating. When I grew up, how do you, you know, I grew up trying to figure out how do I figure out where the deer are on 60 acres, and now all of a sudden it was, how do I figure out where the elk are on 15,000 acres. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, it's a lot different and there's a ton of learning to be done there. Um, I think the biggest thing I've kind of uh, settled on over the years is adjusting my expectations for these Western hunts so that it's not, it's not about killing an elk. Of course, that's what you want to do. Of course, that's the goal. Of course, that's the hope. But if I center my entire trip on success is only killing that elk well then i'm setting myself up for failure yeah. when if i had gone out there and i said hey i'm going to do a six-day backpacking trip in the mountains and if that was my plan i would have a blast i would love that trip it'd be amazing but if i were to backpack for six days but i'm on an elk hunt and i told myself well this is only going to be successful if i kill an elk well then i'm going to be pissed by the end of the trip even though i just had a great backpacking trip let's say um i can't find the joy in that anymore because I was so obsessed with the one thing. So what I try to do now when I'm on these types of trips is, is look at the whole picture and say, okay, we're going to try to kill an elk. We're going to work our tail off to make that happen. But dang it, I'm still going to enjoy the sunsets. I'm still going to enjoy the fact I'm camping in the middle of, middle of a wilderness, which is incredible. I'm still going to take a break at lunch and try to catch some fish. I'm still going to enjoy that cup of coffee at midday uh, because life's too short to try to be a terminator out there in the woods too. Uh, you got to enjoy the whole picture um that's that's where i'm at today in my life at least yeah that that resonates pretty strong with me i've been i've been fortunate enough to do several western hunts now and at first it was 
definitely the heavy pressure of I've got to get out there. Like I'm telling all my buddies I'm going elk hunting. If I come back with nothing, they're going to be like, what the heck? And I just had to curb all of those expectations and just enjoy the scenery. Enjoy one, one of my favorite things now is sitting on a mountain behind my binos. And it doesn't matter if I go an hour without seeing something, just being able to see the, see the creation, see the mountains, see the giant valleys yeah. and the rivers has been amazing. And I, I, in fact, I got back from Utah just a few days ago. I went on a mountain lion hunt with one of my, one of my former guests and nice. we had zero snow. And the whole time he's like, man, this is going to make it tough. Like if we don't get snow, it's going to be hard to just find a good track to start. But we spent four days, probably 500 miles, just on four-by-four trails. I mean, we're like rock crawling, looking for mountain lions. We never did catch up with any. We got to see the dogs run a couple old tracks. And he's like, man, that's a bummer. You'll have to come back out and do it again. And I was like, this was the time of my life. I know people who would pay a lot of money just to come and be in the passenger seat cruising up and down these mountains. And so it's been cool. I know that that initial hunt... Like there is always pressure, but once you, once you get away from, I have to pull the trigger or I have to hit the release, you can actually enjoy yourself and have a successful trip, whether or not you bring back meat or a rack or combo, any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's so true. And it took me a long time to get to that point. You know, I, I, I am coming from the perspective of for a lot of years being that person who's obsessed with bringing home the bacon. Um, I'm very goal oriented. I I'm to a fault sometimes like setting a, setting a goal and then, you know, I'm going to die or achieve that goal. And that's been good for me in some ways, but at the same time, I've more recently, I think maybe it's having kids or something has kind of tempered that in me a little bit to, to getting me closer to what I think is a better place where I can enjoy myself and, you know, push myself to get better, push myself to learn, push myself towards these goals still, but also not rush through life chasing something and and never, never actually never actually enjoying the, the journey along the way. So, so that would be maybe my biggest piece of advice for anybody going out west for the first time. Um, it's just a great experience. Yeah. Don't miss out on the experience. Yeah, no, that's that's really good advice. I mean, once people have that in mind, they're going to have fun no matter what, and they're going to come back. They're not going to, they're not going to come back home to the East or Midwest or wherever they're from demoralized or defeated. They're going to be like, that was amazing. And I can't wait to get back next year or in the years to come. Um, have, have a lot of these hunts that you've been doing, are they like over the counter? Like you mentioned, go to the gas station, buy a tag, or have you been putting in for points for anywhere? Mostly over the counter. Um, I've been kind of fundamentally opposed to the point systems, which <laughs> limits limits me significantly on a lot of things these days, unfortunately, since that's the direction so much is going. Um, you know, my Montana deer hunts have been, you've, you've got to apply in a draw, but in the past they were guaranteed. So I used to draw every year from Montana. That's not the case anymore. So now that's a lottery. Um, Idaho was over the counter for a whole lot of units. So I did that for a lot of years. Um, stuff starting to change there. So I don't know what I'm going to do on that front, but historically all my Idaho elk hunts had been over the counter. Um, I do points in Wyoming. I've been saving up points there for elk. I want to do that eventually. Um, and otherwise everything else is OTC over the counter, Montana, over the counter, Oregon, um, over the counter, Alaska. 
So yeah, I, I, I recognize in saying that, that it's 10 years ago when I started thinking about this stuff, I probably should have started putting in for some of these states. Um, I guess my procrastinating nature or, or lack of forward thinking is going to nip me in the butt there. But, you know, fortunately we still have some opportunity states where you can get tags without having a bajillion points. And at least where I am now, I'm not obsessed with, you know, I don't, I don't need to kill a 340 inch bull or a 200 inch mule deer or something. So the, the super trophy states that take a lot of points, it's, it's not going to keep me up at night that I don't have the points to draw one of those places. I'm going to be happy just getting out and experience this and fill in the freezer and killing a nice bull every once in a while. That, that'll be enough to keep me happy. Um, so maybe 10 years from now, I'll think differently, but that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. It's, it's cool. I think that really breaks down that barrier of entry for anybody coming from, from the East. I mean, like you really don't have to, uh, I was very intimidated. I should say at the beginning thinking, man, I'm going to have to put in for points for 10 years before I can actually draw a tag. And then it wasn't until I moved out to Colorado, I did about two years out there. And I realized even as a non-resident that I could just go and buy a tag. Yeah. It's going to be a lot more expensive not being a resident, but if, if you just go out there, there's plenty of places. I think about half the state of Colorado is over the counter for second rifle season. And I mean, once you get into bow hunting and all of that, when they're in the rut, it changes a little bit, but it is interesting to see a lot of the states moving more towards that point system. And it probably is the information that's being put out there. People now know about it and they've got to find a way to limit it. I haven't yeah. had the, I haven't had the biggest issue putting in for points or um, like buy, paying for the applications. I think for Colorado, it's like 300 bucks just to get an applic or get a preference point for moose, bighorn, and mountain goat. But I look at it and I'm like, hey, that's also giving money to the fishing game agencies. And yeah. they do a lot of work. They've got a lot of boots on the ground out there trying to improve habitat, doing studies and figuring out how to get the populations up. But if you ever, yeah. if you ever do run into a point when you can't draw anywhere or get over the counter tags, just come down to Missouri, man. I'll host you down here. You can get over the counter whitetail and turkey all day long, every day. Yeah, that is that is the nice thing about the Midwest. We're still pretty, pretty easy access with our tags, which is great. Yeah. What What about gear? Like once you once you went out there, I mean, I know you've kind of evolved from a tree stand to a saddle system. What does that look like? Having to adjust your gear, adjust your pack in order to go out and hunt west, hunt out west. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was not a massive change in that I was uh, I was at the same time doing all the whitetail hunting. I also did a lot of hiking and backpacking and camping and stuff. And a lot of that translated over to my Western hunts. So I was able to, you know, just use my backpacking backpack and the same boots I was wearing to go backpacking and all the same camping gear and water filtration and, you know, backcountry, you know, backpacking stove, all that stuff was applicable to my elk hunts and all that kind of thing. So that was actually not too bad. You know, my, the actual clothing I wore for hunts was different going from, you know, mostly, you know, stationary hunting where you're trying to preserve warmth to very active hunting where you are trying to shed heat. So, you know, I, I bought a bunch of stuff new that first year. Um, and then, you know, over the years I've been slowly transitioning, trying different things shifting around um and actually what's interesting is that i'm now 
seeing a little bit of uh, cross-pollination going the other way in that I'm actually wearing a lot of things that are designed for Western hunting now on more of my whitetail hunts because I'm starting to whitetail hunt more like I Western hunt. So I'm starting to do more spot and stalk stuff for deer. I'm doing more, you know, on the ground, glassing from hills and then chasing after deer and doing all sorts of crazy stuff like that sometimes. So for example, I was in Nebraska hunting this year and I was basically wearing my Western hunting stuff on a deer hunt and hunting whitetails kind of like deer. Um, in a certain way. And so I'm doing more and more of that. There's, there's ways that the gear can cross pollinate ideas can cross pollinate, um, which I think is another one of those reasons why it's such a great idea for somebody from the East or Midwest to try some of this different stuff, because not only is it great country and a great experience, but you can learn so many different things that actually might be able to come home with you and help you with your regular stuff. So I've learned plenty on my Western hunts that have helped me become a better whitetail hunter. I've I've tried new gear that's helped me with different trips in the East. Um, I think there's a lot of examples like that. Yeah, that's cool. I I don't know if it is the taste that I've gotten of the West, but there's something about sitting in a tree stand now where I'm like, man, I just want to see what's over there. Like, I, I kind of want to climb down and just go check the other side of the creek bottom. And I know yeah. for the most part where the deer are, it, it would make it difficult to actually get close or possibly even see them but having having that little hint of what the west has to offer where it's like i want to know what's on the other side of the mountain so i'm going to go and find out now sitting in the tree stand it does kind of feel confining and you just can't go everywhere you want to yeah yeah there's definitely some of that temptation that can sneak in um it's 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 good to have both sides of the coin it's good to have both those things. It's good to, you know, I think the Western thing can though sometimes also make you appreciate the Eastern thing more. So after spending a week out running around the mountains, when I get home and I sit in the tree stand, you're like, oh, wow, this is really nice in a different kind of way. I can sit here and just observe and let everything calm down around me and you get to sit and think. And like all of a sudden, if you do that for two weeks straight, you lose sight of what's cool about that. And you're just bored and sick of sitting in a tree. But if you come off of this very different thing, you're like, oh, wow, this is actually very different and fun. Just like, you know, when you're elk hunting after tree stand hunting for for all fall and then all of a sudden you get out there and you're running around and you're finding out what's over the next bend and you're going up the next mountain. You're like, oh, man, this is so active. I'm constantly making decisions right now and trying new things and reacting to how the animals are are behaving. And it's it's so active and it's so dynamic. And this is it's such a nice change of pace from sitting and waiting. So there. You know, I think more and more I'm learning that, you know, the cliche that variety is the spice of life. It's also the spice of your outdoor life and hunting. And uh, it's good. You know, I've, I've for a long time, I was very specialized in whitetail deer hunting. And that was just what I was obsessed with. And I just wanted to do nothing but that thing. And I still, you know, still specialize and I love that thing. But, you know, the more diversity I add into my suite of activities, the better I get it at stuff and the more I enjoy the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the variety definitely makes it a lot better when you can transition from one thing to the next and, and seeing how doable that is to go out to different places and draw a tag or, or to just buy the over the counter one. It's something that I've looked forward to now for several years. I, I always love the rut. And in fact, this year you might cringe a little bit. I don't know if you've run into this issue yet, but one of my Western hunts, uh, coincided with a whitetail rut here in Missouri. 
And so Oof. I missed basically the entire whitetail rut here in Missouri this year. And that was a challenge. I'm not going to lie. I knew it Yikes. would happen either way because we actually had to, I, I don't mind missing it as much to go out and hunt in Colorado, but I knew it could potentially happen anyways. My wife had an appointment in New York City that fell right in the middle of the whitetail rut. And I was like, it's probably going to happen. That got bumped back. So I did get to stay in Colorado a little bit longer, but yeah, that <laughs> that's something that people have to definitely take into account, looking at seasons yes. and making sure you're not missing out on something you're more passionate about to go and pursue something new. Yeah, that's tricky. I've, I've to this point kept all of my Western hunting. I think all of it, maybe all but one has all been mostly in September so that I preserve the core of the whitetail season. But, uh, but yeah, if you do more and more of it, you know, it, it's, it's definitely gonna, you have to make some choices. Yeah. You, you referenced, um, your hiking gear and your backpacking gear and how you were able to use a lot of that for, for Western hunting. I'm sure that one of the things that goes through people's minds coming from the East or the Midwest is do I have to get all new gear to go out and hunt? Well, from the sound of it, you can use a lot of the similar stuff. Was there anything that you had to pick up that you weren't used to um, using or toting around with you? Hmm. Let me think about this. Um, you know, I, I think that one thing that, um, you know, one thing that was a little bit different was that most of the hiking and backpacking I'd, I had done had been like weekend type trips. Uh, I was never carrying much more than like 30 or 40 pounds. And so I had a pretty, you know, lightweight internal frame backpack and that was fine for all those kinds of trips. And I thought that would be fine for elk hunting. But the first time I actually packed an elk off the mountain, I was using an internal frame backpack that was not meant to carry a hundred pounds. And uh, it just about killed me. And so that was a big eye opener I had was really that pack is a super important decision because that thing lives with you basically the entire week, whether you're mule deer hunting, elk hunting, whatever, it is a part of you and it is a part of your day-to-day -day hunts. And it is also part of your pack in, if you're doing that kind of thing with all your camping gear. And it is a part of the death march out, hopefully when you're packing an animal out and that pack needs to be able to do all of those things well for it to really check all the boxes. And that's, that's not an easy thing. So um, that first year, it was not the right pack. It felt like I had two meat hooks stuck in my shoulders, just ripping oh, at me man. for, I don't know, it was like a 16-mile hike that day. I killed a bull at 8.30 in the morning, and we didn't get out. It was me and one other friend. We didn't get out with all the meat, the last haul of meat, until 9 o'clock that night. It, it ended up being 16 miles of back and forth a couple different times to camp and back and to the vehicle. Um, so 16 miles about 12 or 13 hours, something like that. And I was just about as dead as you could ever be. And I, I vowed like, I will never use this backpack again. So the next year I bought an external frame backpack actually. And I don't think we killed anything that year, but the, the next year out, my buddy killed a cow and we packed her out with that thing. And it was like a night and day difference. I mean, it was just joyous. I all of a sudden realized it doesn't have to be miserable packing an animal out if you have the right equipment for it. Since then, I've tried a couple different things. I'm now back to an internal frame, but one that has a much, uh, much heftier internal frame system. And um, I've packed out some serious weight with that, and it's been great. So um, I do think that's one of those things that you should experiment with. That you know, I know a lot of stuff's going digital these days with you know online sales and everything. 
but if there's any way that you can test one out beforehand or I don't know all the return policies with other different companies these days, but if you can buy one, test it with some heavier weight and then return it if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't fit your body right. I think a pack really has a lot to do with not only just the design of the pack and the quality, but also how it fits to your body type. You know, like I am all legs. I am like 65% legs and a little bit of torso. And so I have to have a certain kind of backpack and the right sizing for it to work with me. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's not going to carry weight as comfortably as it should. And so I think that's a, I think that's a really big one. I also think boots, none of this is revolutionary. I think these are things that people always talk about, but for good reason, right? Yeah. Boots, super important. I did a lot of hiking growing up. Um, so I thought I, you know, knew what I was talking about when it comes to hiking boots. But when you go from just hiking to all of a sudden hiking with a hundred pound load, the stability that you need in your feet is different. And if you're doing, you know, 40 miles over the course of a week or something, that's different than just going for a five mile hike. So you know, I think it was my first elk hunt that I bumped up to a heftier boot. Um, and I'm very glad I did. I've used that now for a whole lot of hunts. And so a heavy duty, um, you know, for me, I need a lot of uh, structure and protection around my ankles because I had ankle issues when I was younger. So so getting the right boots, like I'm not afraid to spend 350 bucks or something like that on a really high quality, good pair of hiking boots because those babies make and break your trip. Good boots, good pack. I think, um, you know, off the top of my head, I don't think there's anything more important probably for most Western hunts than making sure you get those two things right. Yeah, I I definitely can echo the, the boot deal. I made a huge mistake, and it actually wasn't even my first year elk hunting. It was my second year. We, we would ride on four-wheelers and side-by-sides about for 45 minutes, until we got to an actual spot where we would drop in and go after elk. And I mean, it could be two miles, it could be five miles, whatever that looked like. Well, we get to the end of the road and I would bundle up. I mean, I was the classic Midwest hunter. Like I had the biggest jacket, the biggest pair of bibs you've ever seen. (laughs) And I would be so bundled up because I mean, 45 minutes on a four wheeler in like 15 degree weather, that can really take the energy out of you. And so I had... I had some lacrosse boots on. I mean, like the 1600 gram Alpha Burley Pros, super heavy duty. And I would always bring other stuff in the back of the side by side that was in front of me. And I would just like swap my boots. Well, we get to the end of the road and we glass elk almost immediately. And I'm so pumped up that I'm like, dude, let's just get down here, get like 300 yards down this finger and try to get a better look. Well, we did, and this whole time, I forgot to change out my boots. (laughs) We end up shooting one of these elk. I ended up shooting a really nice 5 by 6 super pumped about it, and we get all the way down. We're we're quartering it out, and I realize that I still have these boots on, and now I've got, like, a couple miles to get all the way back up, and the adrenaline rush, like, I just completely spaced it. Luckily, (laughs) a couple people came down from the top to help us pack it out and brought my boots. But otherwise, I don't know. I probably would have torn something like trying to hike up a mountain in those boots would not have been good for me. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not something fun. No, it was rough. Um, so you, you switched up your backpack after that first year, you got heavier duty boots. What about, what about optics? Did you have kind of a learning curve with that or were you already using, um, some of the nicer optics or spotting scopes just in 
scouting for deer. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I did not have super good optics that first year or two, maybe. I think I was, um, you know, they were kind of nice for whitetail hunting. I mean, I think I remember I bought my first pair of binoculars for hunting specifically, you know, I don't know, I was in college or something. I bought some Bushnells. And I, I paid like 150 bucks or something. I thought, okay, man, you got some heavy duty, great binos now. Um, and I think I was still using those on that first elk hunt. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, the style of elk hunting that I've done, the places I've elk hunted have not been very glass heavy. You know, we, we haven't been like sitting up on a ridge and glassing for hours. These have been like rut, uh, rut hunts with a bow. And traditionally, at least most of the places I've been, we've been just chasing them. So I haven't even brought a spotter for those. Um, it wasn't really until, you know, I did like a Mexican coos deer hunt a number of years ago when I really started seeing like, okay, if you're going to do this kind of thing, you really need to have like a really good tripod. Um, even a tripod for your binos makes a big difference. Um, so while I don't bring a spotter on elk hunts, I have upgraded to, you know, nicer, I use vortex now. So some nicer 10 by 42s that I just love. And, um, you know, the value of, you know, I don't think you need, not that they're not really nice, but you don't necessarily need like the very top, top end for most average hunters, I think, but getting up into like that middle, middle of the road kind of thing, I think is a good sweet spot for most people. That's it's really going to give you that low light quality that you need where you can spot a critter at daylight or at dusk. And then I do think having a tripod makes a huge difference. If you're going to be doing that glassing heavy type of hunt, a mule deer hunt, a coos deer hunt, certain elk hunts where you're sitting on the glass for a long time watching critters uh, just being able to have that stability and then being able to pan smoothly and lock in place when you need to that's huge um, I never realized that until I started doing some of those hunts and um, you know I use a <clears throat> an outdoorsman tripod which is real slick I know vortex has some new ones that are pretty nice too um, that you know for my bow hunting elk hunts don't want that thing. Don't want that extra weight. Yeah. But for a coos deer hunt, for I don't know, a rifle mule deer hunt, that's probably money well spent. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I have like full disclosure. I work with Vortex as one of our partners, so I can I could get their top end stuff, and their top end stuff's very nice. But I use their middle of the road stuff, and I'm just as happy. Like it's just it's the right fit for me. I like how compact it is. I like the feel of it, and it's plenty high enough quality. Um, so. Yeah, optics are important, and I, I, I've come to find they're super important with whitetail hunting too. Again, because one of the major differences from your cheapo optics to your higher higher end or mid grade is the quality and the performance in those low light situations. Yeah, right. How well can you see when it's getting dark? And that is oftentimes the very most important part of any hunt. Right. That's when most game is active is the first half hour of the day and the last half hour of the evening. And if that's when I think most of the critters are going to be out and about, that's when my binoculars need to work the very best, right? Because when I'm on a deer hunt or an elk hunt or whatever, and it's the last five minutes and I see that thing off in the distance, if I can see it clearly in my binos and realize, oh, that's a target deer or that's a shooter elk or whatever, that all of a sudden 100% changes my plans for the next day. Yep. If I can just see a blob over there, but I can never tell what it is, then I have no data to work with the next day. Um, you know, there's a million examples like that. Yeah. So 
it's nice to have. But I do think, I mean, I say all this, right? Like higher quality optics, important. Higher quality backpack, important. Better boots, important. Clothing that's going to help you, you know, deal with all the different weather and the elements and, you know, adjust your internal climate. That's important. Having, you know, a weapon that you're comfortable with. All these things are important and great, yada, yada, yada. I don't think anyone should let any of those purchases keep them from going out there and doing it. 100%. If you're sitting there and like, man, I don't have this thing. I don't have that thing. I don't have that thing. You can still go. Yep. You can still have an experience. Will it be as, as comfortable at all times? Probably not. Um, as long as you've got a few safety things figured out, right? Make sure you're not going to freeze to death. Make sure, you know, you can cross a river and, and not fall in. Like as long as you can do it safely, get out there and have these experiences um and learn something along the way and then slowly as your budget allows upgrade these different places but don't let any of these suggested gear recommendations keep you from going out this year or next year or whenever it is that you want to because you know it's not necessary yeah um, i'd much rather go out there with crappy gear and get outside and enjoy myself versus wait five years here at home saving up to get the best gear and then finally go out um, after having wasted five years of my life trying to get fancy binoculars or something. Yeah. And I think that for first, first time hunters, they might go out and realize that some of the gear that they have does the job just fine. And they might only have to make one or two purchases. Whereas I know like this year I took out several guys that had never hunted out West. I brought them out to Colorado. We hunted a unit that I had never been and everyone's like, man, do I need a new spotting scope? Do I need new boots? Do I need new camo? Like, what all do I need? Some of them were debating buying a new rifle. And I was like, listen, let's talk about the gear you have, the places you've been with it, and we'll see if that will translate to working and functioning out west. And it turns out a lot of the gear that they did have worked just fine. Um, I, I got to one point with a couple buddies. We were there two days before season opened. And we were walking this drainage and I look up and with my naked eye, I still don't know how I did it because my eyes aren't great. Like I'm always losing a half a point in each eye when I go in for eye exams. But I look up and at 700 yards, I see this beautiful white shed on this dirt patch up on this hillside. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh man, like I am the world's worst shed hunter. I can <laughs> never find them. And so I was like, guys, I'm going after it. You guys can stay here if you want. We get all the way to the top turns out to be a nice four point mule deer side and nice. we sat there for a little bit and we started we started glassing across the valley and one of my buddies was like dude i need to i need to take these um, binos in something's wrong with them every time i get one eye focused and go to adjust then the other eye goes out of focus and i'm like oh that's weird my other buddy said the same thing he's like dude mine is doing the same exact thing and I was like, have you guys tried like just the individual focus on the one eye? And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> they, they both ended up doing it and they're like, Hey, yeah, that fixed mine. And uh -huh. they both, yeah, they both kind of had a, a dumb moment. They were up on the mountain, but once they did that, they're like, dude, I don't need new optics. Like these things work great. I'm glassing things right. over there. Like I just saw a mule deer pop out for five seconds at 800 yards. And, and so yeah, you don't want you don't want purchases to be the reason you don't go out west. I mean, just get out there and then you'll learn the yep. uh, equipment upgrades that you need to do and the ones that you don't. Yep, yep, definitely. 
I've got, I still use, I've got an internal frame pack. It doesn't have like the, the framed out meat shelf at all, but it's got the external strap that like goes around it. And I didn't yep. know how it would do, but I mean, we've packed out, gosh, a mountain goat, a moose, and probably five elk now with that thing. And every time I'm at Bass Pro or Cabela's or any outdoor store, I see the ones with the nice like meat shelf on the bottom and I'm thinking, oh, I could buy that. But at this point, I just, I don't need to spend extra money, Um, especially if it means like I can't buy a tag or put in for a point somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather use that money for gas money or tags or whatever to get out to these places and to enjoy them than to have slightly better whatever yeah for for the listeners that are hearing this and maybe they do have the expendable income or the disposable income to buy some of that stuff would you mind sharing maybe a couple specifics like you mentioned your boots and your pack um what what are you running for both of those so for my pack i'm running an exo gear pack um the 6500 i think it is i can't keep track of the numbers on it (laughs) Uh, but it's whatever their week-long recommended pack is. I think it's the 65. Um, I, it's my second EXO I've had. Um, I've really liked them both. So that's that's the Western pack now that I found really can handle the heavy weight, but also can tighten down and pack down real nice and tidy to use for a day pack too. Um, so I really like that one. Um, for my boots, I you know up I, when I originally was starting to do Western hunts, I used Oslo's. A-S-O-L-O, um, the GTX 250s or something like that, like a heavy-duty mountaineering backpacking boot, and those are great. I've recently started testing um, Danner's, well, Danner and Lacrosse are the same company. So Danner now makes their boots under the Lacrosse brand um, and have been testing some of those. The Lodestar has been the one I've been using more recently. I've used that for some elk hunts and some Western whitetail stuff, and those have been good so far too, and that's what I'm going to be trying out more here in the future. So those are the boots. Those are the packs. Um, was there anything else you want? Any other specific gear? No, I think the, the, the I was going to say the binos I use are the Viper HDs from okay. Cortex. And that's their like kind of mid-tier uh, bino. And I think those are great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say Vortex. I, I run Vortex um, for all my optics. And I've loved them. Like I've looked at the super high end stuff where you're spending a couple thousand dollars on a pair of binos. I've looked at the low end stuff and I've used that and I kind of pushed that out of the side or to the side. But, but Vortex makes a really high quality optic for the price. I mean, I don't think you can, you can find anything anywhere else in, I know you've got a partnership with them. I don't have anything with them at this point, but I'm just saying from what I've seen, it's a great optic for, for anybody who's trying to get into it and for, for, Eastern hunting or whitetail hunting, I think it's a great yeah. option as well. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you can't argue with the warranty thing they've got. Oh, yeah. Basically, if you do, if you do anything to, it, if you smash it, if you run over it with your car, if your kid tosses it in the toilet, whatever, they'll replace it. I mean, it's, it's kind of awesome how good they do that. So that's, that's a nice thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm really hard on gear. So when companies have awesome warranties, it's kind of a no brainer. I'm like, I will break this. It's just a matter of when, and if I can get it replaced for free, that's a that's a great benefit. Yeah. Makes uh, that spent money a lot more easy to swallow. One one last gear thing. When it comes to archery hunting, I mean, I know you've got your whitetail setup. What did you have to change in order to pursue some of these 
big game animals out west? Did you have to change arrow weight, broadheads, anything like that? I didn't change anything except for going to uh, a fixed blade broadhead for elk. I, I was using, and I still, I've been using expandable still for whitetails. That's something I kind of waffle on every once in a while, but um, that's the only thing I changed is just go to a fixed blade, um, 125 grain head for my elk hunts. But otherwise kept my setup the same. You know, I, I try to have a relatively heavy weight micro diameter arrow for whitetails. And that translates just fine to elk. Um, you know, leading into those hunts, I was trying to get comfortable with longer range shots just because longer range shots are something that are, you know, more common in the, in the mountains. And so leading into those first times I ever went out there, practiced a whole lot more to make sure I was comfortable at 50 or 60 or whatever yards. Um, that was the one thing I changed, but that didn't require any changes in my gear. I was already running a five pin site with sighted and up to 60. Um, and so, yeah that's been pretty standard and ever since you know so the first time was 2013 and now it's 2022 and same story i don't change anything else um i run a setup that'll work for anything from antelope to elk um i haven't hunted anything bigger than elk um with a bow so if i was gonna hunt moose you know that might change but yeah for what i'm doing the setup i've got is just fine Man, that's good to hear. I, I have yet to get into Western archery hunting. I'm hoping to do my first this year, but I've talked to some other people who have gone to a heavier setup, but I've talked to several people now and it's been surprising that they haven't really changed much aside from maybe like you said, the broadhead. And so yeah. that, that gives me a lot more comfort knowing that I'm not going to have to completely recite in my bow and redo, I mean, like start oh, yeah. from scratch. To yeah, actually you just swap definitely don't need to do that. Yeah, to swap one thing and be able to get out there and still hunt. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um have you have you done any of the um not the predator stuff, but the decoy stuff? Do you bring a decoy at all when you're out elk hunting? I've never used a decoy for elk. I've used a decoy while bow hunting antelope and while bow hunting western whitetails. Um but that's that's it. Okay. <coughs> wow. I don't know what's going on. Sorry, my board was just making, and it's doing it again. <laughs> that was super odd. Anyways, no well, hey, man, I, I really appreciate you hopping on the call with me today. Hopefully, the listeners take away a lot of good information. I mean, coming from someone who's very well known in the whitetail world and now has seen success hunting out west. Um, lots of cool adventures. Do you have anything big planned for the coming years or this year? You know, I don't actually. Um, still trying to figure out what kind of whitetail stuff I'll be doing this year for various projects with Meteor. Um, you know, what, what shows will be filming. So that, that takes precedent over anything right now. So I haven't got to do any non whitetail hunting stuff out West for the last couple of years, just because I've been so busy filming these different things for me to do. Um, so I don't know, I think this year, you know, that'll probably still be the case. It'll probably be just the whitetail stuff out West. Although I still try to do some whitetail hunts out there, you know, Montana, Idaho, but, uh, definitely doing North Dakota. I think I am doing that this year. Um, but you know, at some point very soon, maybe, maybe next year, I want to try to be able to get a little more diversity on the hunt side there and uh, get back out after elk after I've had to take, I had elk two years ago. So I guess I did get a little bit, but it was a, it was a short trip. So I'm, I'm chomping to get back at that one and uh, 
get some fly fishing trips in too. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have do you have a bucket list hunt that you haven't done yet that you want to? Um, you know, uh, an Alaskan or Canadian moose hunt is right up there. That's very high on the list. Um, and I still, I do want to do a, and I know I said earlier that I don't care about trophy units or whatever, but I would someday like to draw one of those amazing units where I can do an archery rut elk hunt where there's not people everywhere. Yeah. And you can have like the rut fest that you see as like that dream scenario. I've never got to hunt private land for elk or anything, but I'd love to be able to have that serious, serious rut fest. I hit it once. I hit it once. Um, my second year elk hunting on public land over the counter and had that just nuts scenario oh, where there's man. elk screaming everywhere for a week. Um, and it was, it was probably the coolest thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. Uh, I'd like to experience that again. Um, in like a place where you could see a big elk and, and chase them around. Like that'd be fun to have at least one time do that. I know some people do that every single year. That's probably not in the cards for me. Um, but, but yes, that would be cool. And then I'll, I'll take the over the counter. Give me a little four by any other year. I'll be, I'll be super stoked. But one time the big, the big one would be cool to see and experience. Cause they're like forest dragons out there (laughs) screaming and running through the woods. It's just crazy, crazy stuff. And, uh, that's that's pretty fun. I've got I've got to see them bugling one time during second rifle season, and it wasn't like they were responding to calls, but we just saw one bugling out in the distance. That's that's one thing that I wish, and I'm gonna you know like if I ever make it up to heaven, and you know there's the Q and A that everybody talks about, like oh I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask God this and this. I'm gonna be like man, what's up with the moose? Like why is their call the way it is? <laughs> like I see the elk and they're screaming and bugling uh-huh. and then the moose are like, Oh, Oh, I'm like, man, I think that would be, imagine if they made a sound like what they look like. I mean, it would be insane Intense. and probably the most adrenaline rush you could get. Yeah, man. There's uh, it's a whole lot of cool critters out there. That's for sure. We're lucky. Um, we're lucky. We, we've got them. We've got places where we can still see them. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks again. Um, before we sign off, would you mind sharing where people can find you, where they can uh, connect with your stuff or check out your book? Yeah. If you just look for Wired to Hunt on any platform, that's where we're at, right? Uh, Wired to Hunt on Instagram, Wired to Hunt on Facebook. If you were to search for Wired to Hunt, you'll find our website, which is a part of the Mediator website there and tons of whitetail content. Same thing on podcasts. If you get your podcast, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever. We're on all those places. Um, my book is That Wild Country, an epic journey through the past, present, and future of America's public lands. And you can buy that on Amazon or most other places. If you Google it, you'll find it. Um, would really appreciate you reading that one. And uh, yeah, that's that's just about it. And that's going to do it for this episode. What a cool deal. I can't believe that I got to interview Mark Kenyon. He is an amazing advocate for the sports that we love, and he's an amazing writer and creator. You got to go check out the other stuff that he's put out. I mean, if this is the first introduction you've had to him, go check out Wired to Hunt. If you're a whitetail deer hunter, if you want to be a whitetail deer hunter, there is so much good content, so many great questions asked, and amazing guests on that show. Not to mention, 
the stories that you get to follow along with Mark from year to year about the bucks that he's chasing is amazing. And pick up a copy of that Wild Country. I'm telling you, if I can read it, I, I don't look forward to reading books. I don't look forward to a new book. At night, it's not the first thing that I think about. But when my wife got that for me as a gift, it was hard to put down. And I looked forward to flipping through the pages every single night and reading more and hearing about the, the wild places that he got to go. So go check those things out and take, take a lesson from him. Go out and find something new. Like he went from being a diehard white-tailed deer hunter to being in love with fly fishing out west. And I'm telling you, there are so many cool opportunities out there. I don't know anybody who's got to explore all of the places in the U.S. or hunt or fish or pursue all of these outdoor activities. And so I know there's something out there for you that you could fall in love with. So I encourage all of you guys, get out there and chase a new adventure.